Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Michael Keynes, and you're listening to The Latest in an occasional series of readings brought to you by the Times Literary Supplement. Our subject this week is Laurie Lee. I just thought he was a, an original, fresh, youthful country writer. And then, of course, he, uh, uh, later on, he, uh, he, his naivety. Uh, um, and also, I suppose, it went, not so much vanity, but he liked being a boy with a violin all the time, which he wasn't, of course. Um, but, but he never got over, I don't think, this visit to Spain, walking about raised petted and made a fuss of. Because next time he went down, the Spanish Civil War was on. Going to Spain in those days before the war was equivalent, really, to somebody now going, going to, um, I don't know, some South Sea Islands or something, which people now think nothing of going to Spain. But then it was remarkable. It was a curious society all over Britain, really. Yes, the roads, which I can remember as a child um, in Suffolk, uh, but they were homeless people, sometimes pushing a pram with all their belongings on, uh, and sometimes with a dog. Uh, um, and there was somewhere I rode Aikenfield in a little corner down there. There were Irish people who used to come for the... Uh, um, in the, uh, those days when you had to do the picking of certain... You had to have a lot of nut people in the field. Now it's all done by machines, and and so these um, uh, Irish people would arrive, uh, and there would be pubs with members of the tribe which says, <laughs> "No tramps, no Irish outside." They were just people who did what they call piecework, moving about and doing these uh, uh, jobs for which you needed a lot of people in the field, like singling out of uh, um, plants. Uh, and uh, collecting certain kind of fruit and things like that, uh, picking apples. Uh, uh, there, there, it was a kind of labour which needed lots and lots of people doing it because it was seasonal. That was Ronald Blythe, who reviews Laurie Lee's trilogy of autobiographical books in this week's TLS. Lee was born 100 years ago, in June 1914, in the Gloucestershire market town of Stroud. Three years later, his family moved to the nearby village of Slad, a place he was to immortalise in his most popular book, Cider with Rosie, published in 1959. Ten years later came a sequel, 
as I walked out one midsummer morning, in which he describes his experiences as a young man in London and in Spain on the eve of the Civil War. He completed this trilogy much later, in 1991, with A Moment of War, about his crossing of the Pyrenees and the Civil War itself. Writing these memoirs was, in his words, a celebration of living and an attempt to hoard its sensations. A poet and an accomplished musician, a scriptwriter for the Ministry of Information during the Second World War, and curator of eccentricities during the Festival of Britain, Laurie Lee was also, it turns out, a dab hand with a paintbrush and a pencil. There's currently a fine selection of his work on display at Stroud's Museum in the Park, which I've reviewed in this week's TLS. Here's one of Lee's essays about life in SLAD as seen through the eyes of an eager young participant in its traditional festivities. It's called Whitsuntide Treat. In the kitchen, there is a fierce bubbling of flames and water and rainbows of reflected sunlight on the ceiling. My brothers and I, washed and anointed with brilliantine, turn and run out into the yard. We are met by blades of heat and bursts of cuckoos, and the garden is a turmoil of bees and scratching hens. Tense with the enjoyment of the hour, we walk along the road. There is a smell of tar and lilac in our nostrils. The road looks rich like a new carpet. We strike sparks with our boots as we walk and look luxuriously about us. Girls are gathering flowers in the gardens. Shoes are being blacked and ribbons tied. Joe Partridge practices his flute, and a cart goes by with a pile of flags. Now, in the steep field with ropes and several ladders, we survey the trees. Bullock, the builder, trumpeting his cigarette, looks up and frowns at the lofty limbs. Each year it is the same problem, and each year we make the same bold decisions. A ladder sweeps into the air, a searching spear into the remote no-man's land of the upper branches. The thick ropes, smelling of oakum and the sea, are trailed aloft and knotted into place. The seat is shaken to the ground, and the whole thing hangs ready, a swaying, dangerous engine of delight. That'll do, says Bullock. Like a go, I grip the rope and pull myself into the broad and slippery cockpit. Bullock stands behind me, and I shoot like a rocket from his hands, soaring out over the valley and up among the strange knots and powdery shadows of the creaking oak. Each sweep is a sickening ordeal of fear and death, but I am having the first swing, and the bully, Walt Kerry, that unscrupulous pirate of every pleasure, is outmaneuvered and confounded. At the recreation hut, the flags are coming out. We go there and sit on the wall and watch. Here is a rich and splendid sight which never fails to ring the first gay bell of celebration. Across the green bank lie the flags in all their multitude, striped, squared and circled with traditional emblems, ensigns, union jacks, tricolours, crescent moons and all the stars and suns of the Orient. And the girls are there, crouching and chattering, their mouths full of flowers and string intent on the decorations. Upon the grass are piles of staring moon daisies and branches of lilac 
and intoxicating elder blossom. The girls are arguing and crying out to one another and tying the blooms to the top of each flagpole, and the remainder will be bound with leaves into their hair. As they kneel on the ground, among all the precious coloured rags, we forget their tiresome tricks and schoolroom tempers. They flame in their dresses and are strange among the flowers. And there, against the wall, with its stained but glowing picture of the Good Shepherd, stands the banner, the vanguard of our splendour. It is already topped with flowers, and its tall yellow poles, its ropes and gilded tassels, are woven thick with ivy leaves. To hold a pole, or at least a string, of this banner is the summit of our pride, and we scheme for it, secretly, weeks in advance. But gazing at this emblem, I am suddenly aware of Jenny King, posturing beside it. She comes from a wild family of drunks and poachers, and she is my squaw, my secret. Elder Blossom hangs from her ears, and she holds a tall red flag in her hand and is smothering it with lilac. Thick waves of scent curl up from the yard, and I forget the banner and swear I will carry her flag or die. We gather round the cross in sweating groups, dancing our flags and scrambling for position. Six boys hold up the banner, and Walt Carey is prominent among them. Scowling, he clutches a coveted pole, militant, forbidding, and covered with warts like a riveted battleship. The band arrives, spitting through pipes and flourishing silver valves, and we form up behind them. I look everywhere for Jenny's scarlet flag and suddenly catch sight of it. It waves in the hands of a Painswick youth, and her lilac is scattered on his coat. Cold with rage, I trip him up, snatch the flag and hide it in my shirt. Then the band strikes up with a bumping burst of noise, the signal for a general armistice and the march to begin. The banner lifts and leans into the sky, and pushing our flags forward, we follow, exulting. How the drums shake, how the trumpets prance, how bright is the sun and how gay the assembly. We sweep down the road and into the village, and the people come to their doors and gaze at us in awe. We stamp our feet, our music thunders, and Jenny's flag is like a flame in the sky. We are a mighty army, a host of Midian. We are ten thousand strong, valiant and splendid every one. Oh, there is no end to us. We march in ecstasies of drums and cymbals. We are all twelve feet high and terrible as Turks. When we reach the field, the musicians sit down on forms and blow. The flags are hung in the trees, and with Joe's flute flying like a pigeon overhead, the girls dance in a circle, their flowers dropping on the ground and their feet treading the petals into a paste of honey. The boys watch, then break up into groups, nuzzling the grass, dividing the bushes and throwing paper darts at the trumpets. And all the grown-ups arrive, fluttering babies and bottles of cider, settling themselves down in family herds upon the grass. The village spinster arrives with her trays of homemade toffee. The squire scatters oranges among the girls, and the band plays and drinks beer and shakes out its spittle and plays again. And above the hoarse and drowsy dances, the stuttering cuckoos, the howling swings, and the cries of tribal warfare, we strain our ears, waiting on tiptoe for the first stroke of the signal bell. When it rings, we all pause, and across the valley, a tower of white smoke rises from the recreation hut. 
like a wave, we charge down the steep banks, jumping molehills, scattering cowslips, and feeling the grass beat and tug against our shoes. Walt Curry is flying on before, as usual, but we follow him closely, leaping like grasshoppers. Suddenly, he disappears, and I pass him lying on his face in a patch of blue thistles, crying and beating the ground with rage. In the hut, the tables are spread and waiting. There are rows of cups and rows of teapots and plates piled high with buns and cake. A steaming urn stands in a corner and the air is exciting with smells of bread and currants. We break madly around the tables. We bellow grace and rattle cups and the hot sweet tea passes up and down and the buns pass into the bottomless pit. But poor Walt Carey doesn't come at all. They say he fell flat into a cow pancake and had to go home to wash. Cakes are put aside for him, but it is not the same. Back in the field, fresh ceremonies draw out the evening. Then, as the shadows strip the sun and the golden cock turns red above the church, a trumpet is blown and we line up for the races. We feel as heavy as elephants. Bill Bullock and the vicar call through their hands... The families cheer their young, the girls their champions, and we dash up and down among the nettles, gasping in the agony of competition. There is a three-legged race for fun, and I find Jenny, her hair loose and her face yellow with buttercups from rolling on the grass. We tie our legs together with a rag, we wind our arms about our waists, and run together in a dream, bound as if we belonged to each other. A strange, fleet animal which is both of us. After the races and the diplomacies of the judges, the prizes are given. Scarlet cricket balls, yellow bats, pistols and fascinating boxes, the final trailing feathers of the day. We are full and weary now. The swings are deserted, the flags have disappeared. Everything has been won and tasted and enjoyed. Blue twilight rolls like smoke down the valley. The musicians disperse, rubbing their sore lips and we all start for home laden with trophies and boasting only the lovers remain among the bushes their time just beginning read more about Laurie Lee in this week's TLS which also includes reviews of Roger Liddell's new book The Europe Dilemma Prue Shaw's critique of the Divine Comedy and Oliver Reddy's translation of Crime and Punishment we also look at new novels by Martin Amos and Ali Smith, as well as the history of the slave trade, Ezra Pound's left bank years, and exhibitions at the British Museum and Ashmolean. To find out more about the TLS and to read a free selection of pieces from this week's issue, go to our website, the-tls.co.uk. You can read the TLS in full every week in print or via our app, which is available on iTunes and in the Amazon App Store. The TLS, life in every word. 
United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.